That's enough of a prelude. Let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Father, we're very thankful that we have the privilege and freedom that we've had in this nation for over 200 years to freely proclaim the truth of your word, to focus on your word. And for much of that time, it was your word, the Bible, that that laid the foundation for thinking, the foundation for society, the foundation for economics, that that established the pro- and, and provided for the prosperity of this nation. And that is a basis of freedom, that those who are in line with reality can be free. But the more we drift from the truth of creation, the truth of your word, the more we uh, drift into fantasy and into wishful optimism that is divorced from reality, the more we become slaves to our own neurotic and psychotic fantasies. And Father, unfortunately, we've elected a lot of people to public office who are uh, psychotic in the sense that... uh, the old definition that a neurotic builds castles in the air and the psychotic moves in and the psychologist charges the rent, and uh, that's exactly what's happened. We have the inmates running the, the asylum. Father, we pray you'd protect us, provide good leaders. We pray that you would uh, provide uh, sound military leaders that are uh, fully aware of the kinds of things that are going on on our borders and can protect us because each year these events get more disturbing. But, Father, our job is to focus on you. We're to be a light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We are to be hopeful, optimistic, not unrealistic or irrational, but optimistic because we know that there's a plan, and even though the short term may include some things that are not pleasant, the long term we have victory and you will be glorified. Help us tonight as we study to focus on some uh, challenging topics and things that people don't always talk about or think about very clearly. Help us to think clearly and precisely and biblically. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, and last week we're focusing on Hannah and Hannah's situation, Hannah's condition, and Hannah's... uh, emotional reaction to what is going on in her life in terms of the fact that she is barren. And this isn't something that just happened once. If if anyone has ever been in a, whether you're a man or a woman, where you have dealt with infertility, this is something that goes on for any number of years. We live in a world today where there's a lot of technology to address uh, these issues, but it still is stressful for a lot of people. They go through a lot of testing. They go through all sorts of different things medically. And by God's grace, because of technology, often today they're able to have children. But that wasn't the case in the ancient world. And there was a focus, especially upon women having children, not because they were a sexist, patriarchal culture, although that's the women's lib uh interpretation, the feminist interpretation of Scripture, it is that when God created male and female, he created both male and female in God's image, but he had designated roles 
for men and women, and they're not restricted. That has been uh, abused and distorted a lot, but just because it's been abused and distorted doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater and you say there are no role distinctions and uh, there are no, there's nothing significant about the difference between maleness and femaleness. God created them male and female. Part of the role of the female, especially since the fall, is to be the seed bearer. And that term, as we saw, is a messianic term that from the very announcement that God made in Genesis uh, 3.15 that the seed of the woman would defeat the seed of the serpent. And so in the, that's why you have these genealogies in the Bible. They're tracing the seed from Adam to Noah, from, from Noah to uh, uh, Terah, who is uh, Abraham's uh, grandfather, from uh, Terah down through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the, the 12 sons, and then you see the other uh, lineages that trace the line uh, of Judah and trace the line of the Levitical priests. The line of Judah, of course, goes down to David. The line of David then through the kings is traced and eventually to the birth of Jesus the Messiah. That's the purpose of those genealogies that bore everybody. They're some of the most important scripture because they trace the line of the seed. So in Israel, in each generation, there's this expectation that maybe this is the generation and that the the, the, the woman is going to give birth to a son. And so there is, is a biblical, a spiritual, a legitimate pressure and a legitimate expectation there that women will be fruitful and perhaps give birth to the Messiah. And so when a woman was not able to have children, when she was infertile, this was a a significant problem. And it's intensified with Hannah because her husband needed to have a, an heir, have children for, to whom or through whom his inheritance, his property in the promised land would pass on. This, this is all um, anchored in, in the language of Leviticus and the language of Joshua, the property, property rights, the ownership of the land that every Jew Every Israelite had ownership of land, and it was not to go outside of the outside of the clan, outside of the family. And so this was extremely important. But uh, so Elkanah married a second wife so that he could uh, have children. He loved Hannah dearly, but she is uh, berated, ridiculed, uh, hassled all the time by her rival. Penina, it's interesting that word rival has that also is a, another term for a concubine. Concubine was a rival, a, uh, an enemy. And so we see her response that comes, that, that is just mentioned several, several times. And so I ended last time coming, bringing us up to this doctrine of the barren woman. But before we get there, let me just anchor us back into uh, the flow of thought here that in the first seven chapters of First Samuel, the Lord is preparing to change the direction of Israel. It's been on a downhill slide into apostasy, moral relativism, and self-destruction. So that now they don't ever, they don't even care about being delivered from their enemies. It's a, it's a lot like America today. America, for the most part, many, many Americans are so concerned about their personal, as, as Francis Schaeffer said it 
30 years ago, their personal peace and prosperity. They're concerned about their own stuff. They're concerned about their, their, their iPhone working. They're concerned about all the different details in, in life and, and the pictures and selfies they're taking and all of these other things and getting a career and, and everything that, that they're oblivious to what goes on outside of their immediate space. And we have a nation like that that's oblivious to what's going on outside the boundaries, the borders of our state. And we've got leaders who have uh, have ignored and forgotten and have rejected the concept of a national entity and the importance of establishing borders. And if you don't establish your borders, then you lose your identity. You just bring it down to your house level. You're living in your house. You're just going to open the doors. Anybody can come in. Anybody can sleep upstairs, downstairs, sleep on the couch. Anybody can live here. Anybody can cook here. We're just going to open it up to anybody. Well, that it doesn't work on a microcosm, and it doesn't work on a macrocosm. But when you have a culture that has completely lost its sense of absolutes and identity and right and wrong, then they don't care about those things anymore. And Israel didn't care about it. They, they, they didn't even turn to God uh, before Sam, Samson and say, Lord, deliver us, as they had under uh, at the time of, of, of Othniel, the time of Ehud, and the time of Deborah, and the time of Gideon, and the time of Jephthah. They had all cried out to the Lord for deliverance, but they didn't do that with, with the Philistines. They were willing just to, you know, bow their head and take it. And, and this is where we find ourselves. But... Uh, in contrast to Israelites at the time, we see a distinction in Hannah. But in these first seven chapters, God's going to deliver them even though they haven't cried out for it, and that's grace, as I pointed out last time. And we see that the way he's going to do that is through Hannah, and he's going to honor Hannah's faith by answering her prayers. And we see an elevated sense of who Hannah is here. She is held up. Things are said about her and things that she does in this chapter, as I pointed out last time, that are distinctive. No other woman in the Old Testament does what she does. She is not pictured negatively because she is reacting emotionally and grieving and in sorrow and in distress of soul. We're going to look at that. Uh, under the doctrine of weeping and grieving and sorrowing uh, as we go forward. So the Lord is not berating her because she re- responds that way, because unlike everybody else, she's got a problem of infertility. What's everybody else in the country doing? They're headed off to the Baal and the Asherah, and they're going to the fertility gods and goddesses, and they're using all the little pagan uh, uh, techniques to try to have children. Hannah turns to the Lord of hosts in order to find a, 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 a solution to her problem. So this is what we see here. The Lord opens Hannah's womb in these first 20 verses. And as we've gone through this, we see that he had closed Hannah's womb to prepare the nation uh, <clears throat> through a gracious, miraculous birth. And that's going to be the birth of, of, of Samuel. So we see that uh, she has a response, her her rival would provoke her. She has serious people testing. Some of us go through serious people testing. They're trying to always push her buttons, irritate her, anger her. And so she is, uh, she is going to be grieved. 
Now, having grief, this concept of sorrow, is not in and of itself a sin. I just want to reiterate this. Some of us have gotten the idea that if you have certain emotions, they're a sin. Let me disabuse you of that. Emotion isn't a sin, and having certain emotions aren't inherently sinful. The Bible talks about jealousy. Jealousy can be a sin if it's self-centered. But God also uses the same term to refer to himself. Okay, so we have a lot of these terms that are used in certain contexts. They can be sinful. In other contexts, they can't. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is absolutely perfect in hypostatic union, he's, he, ne- he never sinned, he, but he was tested in all points as we are. Yet one of the ways in which we're tested is by our own emotions. Having the emotion isn't a sin. It's responding to that test from that emotion that's the sin. Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, is sorrowful, lupeo, a word that's used again and again and again to describe grief, sorrow, what we might even refer to today as depression, sometimes a pain. Uh, in Ma- uh, Matthew twenty-six thirty-seven, as he's in Garden of Gethsemane, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. There is a certain anguish of soul in the anticipation of the perfect Son of God bearing the sin of the world. So that's that's a preview of where we're going to get before class is over with tonight, looking, looking at those things. So that sort of brings us up to where we were last time. And then I want to cover the doctrine of the barren woman. I've covered this in the past. I've expanded it a little bit with some new information this time. And so we're going to go through these details. Bearing children was a sign of God's greatest blessing in the Old Testament. Now, some people may not like children. Some people may not want to be a mother or a father. But the Word of God clearly states that it is God's plan and purpose for marriage to produce children, that the family is the training ground for the next generation in a nation. If the family breaks down in terms of training the next generation, then the nation will break down. Consequently, if the marriage breaks down and there are failures in the marriage, then the family will fragment and then the nation will fragment. And and then we push it back to the first divine institution of individual responsibility. And when people give up being personally responsible and accountable to God for their actions or even being responsible or accountable to anyone for the, their actions, then this is going to destroy the second divine institution of marriage. Hello, you see the connection? We're breaking down, and we have broken down the first divine institution. The second divine institution is, is, is just been decimated, and that has led to the breakdown of the, of the family. And now we're getting in a situation where we are uh, witnessing the redefinition of the family by legislative decree as we're going to change the definition of marriage to include same-sex marriage. And once you change the definition of marriage by legislative decree, then you necessarily and consequently will legally change the definition of the family, and the family will will be defined by the government. Once the government starts defining what makes a family a family and who has responsibility for the rearing of children, then that will be the end of the nation because that will lead to the complete fragmentation and destruction of the next generation. This is already happening in Canada. It's happening in England. 
and it's beginning to happen here in in the United States. This is fundamentally legally what the problem is with redefining marriage. It is it, you have a host of unintended consequences that will reverberate through society, uh, and so this is something we all need to be uh, very much aware of. But the Bible elevates having children. Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are an heritage, an inheritance, a possession. From Yahweh, the fruit of the womb is a reward. So we're looking at the children from a divine viewpoint as a reward. Now, I know. I can read some. I, ha- I see these little balloons over some people's heads. And I can read those thoughts. I'd say, my child's a reward. Boy, I'm not so sure. Well, that's because they're sinners. And we have problems with sinners. And we all have our individual volition, and that can be a problem. But but the way God planned it is that those children are a reward. They are a blessing to a couple to prepare for the next generation. We have to look at this thing in the big picture. So the fruit of the womb is a reward. God said this. I didn't. If you quarrel with him, you can take this up. You can go stand in the other line when you get to heaven. I think there are going to be three lines in heaven. Line number one is going to be just a very short line, and those are the people who want to talk to Jesus. Line number two is going to be a really long line, and 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 it's it's really split into two parts. It's the folks who want to, who have something to say to Adam and to Eve. It's all going to be women in the Eve line, and they're all going to be talking to her, saying, "You know what you did to us." And and then you're going to have a few people who want to talk to God about. You know, there are some things like this that I'm not quite so sure were, were really true in the Word. I want to just have a conversation about this. So this will probably go on for the first couple of millennia before God straightens everybody out. Anyway, that's just, just joking. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Arrows are how the warrior impacts and destroys the enemy. So the way parents should view their children is that they are training and rearing their children to send them out in war against the cosmic system and the culture around us that is pagan. And that's how you change the culture, is you have children and you train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and then send them out into the battle. So they're like arrows in the hands of a, of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have children when you get old. That's not what this is saying. Okay, don't read things into this. Happy, blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. It gives prestige, power, influence in the culture. So with Hannah, her barrenness and the miraculous conception and birth would have reminded her of what happened with the matriarchs of Israel, with, with, with Sarah and Rebecca and uh, Rachel, that God divinely intervened and changed the course of history through the matriarchs of Israel, and God's going to divinely interview, intervene in her life and change the course uh, of Israel's, uh, Israel's history. So as we look at this, we have to work our way through what some of the Scripture says. One problem some people have is, and the Pharisees had this problem with the blind man in John 9. They said, who sinned, this man or his parents? What was Jesus' response? Neither one of them. He's blind from birth for the glory of God. 
and then he healed him. So we have this superficial view that if something isn't the way it ought to be, if a woman isn't able to have children, that somehow this is a punishment for their sin. That's not what the scripture is saying. It's not because they did something wrong. So my first point is that the significance of barrenness is not some sin on the part of the woman who is barren. It's reflective of something much greater. There were certainly many other barren women in Scripture. And the question we should ask is, why are these six that are mentioned in Scripture mentioned? What's the significance of these six? Now, there are a lot of interesting things that we can say about them, but we have to remember a biblical framework here, and that is that fruitfulness was a divine command. It's a blessing from God, according to Psalm 127, 3 through 5, but fruitfulness was also a divine command. Before Adam and Eve ever sinned, from day one that they were created, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas, let birds multiply on the earth. And that was related to, to man and, and the woman as all. They were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was their original mandate. Now, God intervened, as we're going to see, in barrenness, God intervenes a lot in the reproductive cycle. So God didn't allow them to reproduce initially because it was time for the test. I don't think the test took all that long, frankly. I think they probably fell pretty quickly. We all want to read some time into there, but lengthy time periods in Genesis 1 through 3 never occurred to any Christians or theologians until evolution came on the scene and historical geology said, oh, somehow we need to have a lot of time here. Before that, nobody really thought that there's a lot of time between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. That's just the influence of paganism. Genesis 9.1, this be fruitful and multiply. Actually, uh, Genesis 1.22 is the be fruitful and multiply command for the animals. Genesis 1.27 is the, or 26 and 27 is the one for the, for the man and woman. Uh, Genesis 9.1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it's repeated again to Noah when they got off the boat. So they've got six of them, uh, or eight of them, and they said, now go out, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And he repeats it again. So twice in the Noahic covenant, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Did God say, you know, no, don't do that anymore? No. What's the sign of that covenant? The rainbow. What else was in the covenant? Capital punishment. What else, my favorite part? What else was in the covenant? Prime rib, steak, good stuff. You can now eat meat. So as long as you see a rainbow, we eat meat, right? We eat, we, we eat meat, we, ha- we execute capital criminals, okay? And we're fruitful and multiply. That hasn't been rolled back yet. Now, in some specific cases, God intervened and closed the wombs of some women. The Bible isn't saying that whenever a woman is infertile, that God has closed her womb. Does, you can't extrapolate. That's, that's a logical fallacy to make that ex, kind of extrapolation. What the scriptures do say is that in these specific incidences, God did intervene and close the womb. We have the uh, case when um, 
Sarah, Abraham says, this is, this is my sister instead of my wife. And she goes in to be a, uh, in the harem of Abimelech. And we're told God closed the wombs of all the women in the harem. So, so, so that's one way in which God got Abimelech's attention. Nobody was getting pregnant. That meant she had to be there for a little while, not just a couple of days, because you have to be aware of the fact that nobody's getting pregnant anymore. Genesis 30, verse 2, And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? The point of that verse is, God is the one who closed the womb of, of Rachel. These are unusual circumstances, and that those two verses plus Hannah are the only places in the Bible where it specifically says God closed their womb, although providentially that's probably true for the others as well. So in the third point, Scripture makes an issue out of the infertility of six women. The first is Sarah, the wife of Abraham. The second is uh, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. And the third is Rachel, the wife of, of uh, Jacob. Those are the three matriarchs of Israel. What is going on here? Well, as we'll see, this is God showing that he is miraculously giving birth to the nation Israel. He is intervening in human history to bring forth new life in these dead wombs. And what's involved in that is really remarkable, especially with Sarah, because I heard a... a, a obstetrician talk about this one time everything that would be necessary to rejuvenate a woman's uterus when she if if she had been far past the age of childbearing gone through menopause the elasticity of the womb the elasticity of the skin all the different things biologically that had to happen this was just a phenomenal miracle for sarah to become pregnant and it was pretty close to that for every one of these these other women. So we have Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. And then the next time this is mentioned is with the mother of Samson and Hannah. And as I pointed out in the introduction, there are a lot of comparisons and contrasts made between Samson and Samuel, and this is one of them. The mother of Samson, the angel of the Lord appears and says, okay, now you're going to have a child, and he's going to be a Nazarite from birth. This is a divine command. Hannah prays that God would give her a son, and she makes a vow that if God would give her a son, then he will be a Nazarite from birth. And there's a contrast there. The the, the child that is born to the mother, mother of Samson, Samson is, is a failure in his role as a judge, whereas Samuel is a tremendous success and blessing and is the one who transforms Israel. And then there's no other mention until we get to the New Testament, and we have Elizabeth, who is the wife of Zechariah and the mother of John the Baptist. And she's probably pretty close to past the years of childbirth herself, and Gabriel announces to, to uh, Zechariah and then uh, that she's going to give birth, and she, she gives birth uh, becomes pregnant, conceives, and gives birth to John the Baptist. Each of these individuals are significant in the history of Israel. But I think there's some some other elements to this that are going on. But those are those are the uh, six that we have have in Scripture. I think they all are types, in some sense, of the virgin womb of Mary, because Mary has not had sexual relations with any man, and yet where there's no life, there is 
the life, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, who comes from her. So they all depict the fact that God is the one who can bring life where there's no life. Barrenness was considered a reproach. We don't quite understand that in our culture. You go back maybe four or five generations and you would, but we don't quite orient to this anymore in our culture ever since the early 60s when birth control pill came along. Uh, we, we've sort of lost the sense of, of the importance of reproducing ourselves culturally. And the, the generation coming up does, seems to be even less inclined towards reproduction. And when you study demo, uh, the demographics of the U.S., if it weren't for the Hispanics, uh, who are having four, five, or six children, and the Muslims in the U.S. who are having a lot of children, we would be in a negative, uh, negative growth, population growth climate, just like most of Europe is. And we would be in self-destruction. That's what happens when you're not producing enough children to even maintain your current population. Now, barrenness was considered a reproach. Genesis 30, 23, uh, she conceived and bore a son. This is talking about Rachel. God has taken away my reproach. This is the word herpa, which means a reproach, a disgrace, or contempt. A woman who could not have children was viewed with contempt by people. She couldn't fulfill her roles. She, she was not who she should be. There was a, a, a stigma attached to that. Luke one twenty five. Uh, this is... Um, Elizabeth, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Point number five, the absence of barren women in the society in Israel was indicated uh, a sign of Israel's spirituality and divine blessing. By contrast, the presence of barren women would indicate Israel's carnality and God's divine, God's judgment upon the nation. We have several verses here, uh, that are significant. Exodus 23-26. In Exodus 23-26, we read, uh, there shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. This is a promise of God to the Jews as they're, after they've come out of Israel at Mount Sinai that this is the way God is going to bless them. There will be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. In Genesis thirty-five eleven, Genesis thirty-five eleven, we read, Also God said to him, I am the God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you. This is what God's talking to, to Jacob, shall proceed from you. And kings shall come from your body. Okay, this is anticipating what will come from Israel. The command to Israel was to be fruitful and multiply. This is Israel doing their job. Leviticus 26 and verse 3, I started this off early. God gives a condition in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I'll give you rain, productivity, fertility, rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, productivity, fertility. The trees of the fields shall yield their fruit, productivity, fertility. And then you skip down to verse 9. He says, For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. So that... When, you know, the productivity of the womb was a sign of God's blessing in the nation. Deuteronomy 7.14, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. So in Israel, being barren was really a problem. This is a major issue. 
And it's a sign of the spiritual failure of the nation. So that's point six. The barren womb in these women pictures the emptiness and the lifelessness of Israel specifically and mankind in general. It pictures them as being spiritually non-productive and spiritually barren. And this is only going to be fulfilled ultimately in the kingdom. And this is seen in prophecy in Isaiah 54.1. Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of a married woman, says the Lord. It's a prophecy related to their um, productivity in the kingdom. Seventh, in each case... Of these six women, God miraculously brings forth life where there's death. This is a picture, ultimately, of regeneration. God can transform death into life. God can transform hopelessness into hope. God can bring light into darkness. But only God can do it. And so it's a great sign of hope for the nation when this takes place. When Hannah, who is barren, gives, is, is able to conceive and give birth, this is a time of great rejoicing because Israel is barren spiritually. And God is going to do a great work in them bringing life into Israel. And then as I pointed out a minute ago under point eight, the barren womb is a type of the virgin womb of Mary. There, there the solution to the barren womb is the new life in the incarnation of the God-man Jesus Christ. Maybe I ought to write that, the, the, the solution to the empty womb, the lifeless womb, because she hasn't given birth yet, is the new life, the incarnation in the God-man Jesus. Okay, let's go back and look at our passage. We stopped around verse 7 last year, so it was, I mean last week. So it, so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked, that she, that is, Penina, provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Now, is she wrong for weeping? There's not a hint of disapproval, a hint of criticism in the text. This is a normal, normal response. So she, she weeps. I want you to notice the phrases that we have here in verse 8. Elkanah says to her, why do you weep? And then he says, why is your heart grieved? The word there for grief is a word for evil or bad or is your discontent. Why is your heart grieving? And he asks her a rational question. Husbands, there's a lesson here. You know, why are you grieving? You know, he's concerned, but, but, as we're going to see here, emotion and emotional responses are not necessarily rational. They're emotional. And the two are not the same. So you're not going to get a rational answer because of, a, of an irrational or emotional situation. So this is a dinner time, and Hannah just maintains her poise until she can leave, and she, when they finish eating and drinking, she... Uh, goes and heads to the tabernacle. She recognizes the only solution is the divine solution, the only solution to her problem. Now, there are other things that she can do secondarily, but ultimately, God's the only solution. He's the only one who can solve this. There's no really secondary, secondary options. Okay, so then she goes, and verse 10 we read, she's in bitterness of soul. 
I'm not going to have a show of hands here, but I would bet that every one of you almost have been taught that this means she was bitter. Is that true or false? That's false. She's not bitter. That's not what bitterness of soul means. We're going to look at that right now. What does bitterness of soul mean? Most clear passages are in poetry because poetry uses idioms in synonymous parallelism which help us to understand through the parallel what is being said. And I can't tell you how many people... Somebody asked me this last week. I can't remember afterwards who it was, but they said, wasn't she bitter? And I know some of you, and I know what you've been taught, and some of you have been taught. You have heard it said that she was bitter. That's not what this means at all. Got to look at usage. Job 3.20, Job says, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Bitter of soul is a person who is in emotional pain, somebody who is in misery, somebody who is upset, not somebody who is bitter. It's a little more clear in Job 7.11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. Now, notice anguish of my spirit is parallel to I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Bitterness of soul means you're under anguish. You're under pressure. It's like the Lord Jesus Christ was under pressure and deeply distressed and under a heavy burden in the Garden of Eden. Job 10.1, my soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Bitterness of soul was someone who was grieving and distressed over the circumstances in their life, and they felt hopeless because they didn't see a solution to the situation and the circumstance. We have this um, also in another passage, a similar concept in relation to the Shunammite woman in Second Kings 4.27. This is a story where Elisha had taken up residence with the Shunammite woman and her husband, and she hadn't been able to, to I think uh, she had a son, and now this son, what happens with this son? He dies. And she comes to Elisha, and she knows that she, he can come back to the house and bring life back to her son. So she comes back and he says, uh, comes back to, to Elisha, and Gehazi's there, and she caught him by the feet. And Gehazi came near to uh, push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. She, she's grieving legitimately because of the death of her son. There is a legitimate role in life for grief over circumstances. Paul doesn't say it's wrong to grieve in 1 Thess chapter 4, verse 13. He doesn't say we don't grieve. He says we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We do grieve. These words are used again and again of legitimate emotional response throughout, uh, throughout the Scripture. So this means we have to really understand what's going on. So when we look at Hannah... We need to think about this as a paradigm. It's a great paradigm because it shows that when you're going through this, even though you're going through a lot of emotional testing because of circumstances, that you still turn to the Lord and he's the one who provides the solution and you don't yield to those emotions to go in the wrong direction of sin. So what we see here is so that so many people 
in various circumstances in life, at whatever age you may be in, you're going to face different difficulties, different levels, different kinds of adversity. And as a result of that, you're going to experience grief and sorrow over some loss. It may be the loss of a child. It may be the loss of a parent. It may be the loss of a spouse. It may be the loss of a job. It may be the loss of a home. Or it may be the loss of, uh, of some dream, something you've always wanted in life, and now you realize uh, you're never going to have it. Um, these hopes and dreams may be legitimate. They may not be legitimate. But when we experience loss, we're going to experience grief. Sometimes they won't, that period won't last very long. Sometimes it may last a long time, as, especially if it's someone, a spouse, a husband, a wife that we dearly loved, and you spent uh, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50 years with, and now they have been taken home to be with the Lord. There is an emptiness there that won't go away. It will gradually, it will diminish, it won't be as intense but it will be there for the rest of your life. And there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is using that as an excuse to be irresponsible or disobedient to the Lord or not not trusting in the Lord. As far as we can tell with Hannah, with everything that is said here, Hannah's right with the Lord. But she's experiencing an ongoing grief and sorrow in her life that lasts for more than just a few months. This went on for several years as she's being taunted uh, by her rival. Throughout this time, she's applying the word to her circumstance and her situations, ongoing testing, and she's growing spiritually, and she understands uh, various uh, dynamics uh, about uh, about the Lord. She she turns to Him and Him alone for her uh, for her sustenance, and so she grows spiritually. Now, we live in a world of immediate gratification, and it's getting worse. It's going to, probably within the next two or three years, we're going to get to a point where you have a whim to get something, and you can get on the internet and order it, and it'll be delivered to your house within a couple of hours. Instant gratification, and we're getting used to it. We have so many comforts. Uh, that that we enjoy, and there's nothing nothing wrong with those things, but they they have an impact on our thinking that that we can have quick fix solutions to life's problems. But the spiritual life doesn't work on quick fix solutions, despite what a lot of megachurches proclaim. The spiritual life takes time. Spiritual growth takes time. You can't rush the growth of a plant. You can't make a huge statuesque redwood no matter how much fertilizer you dump on it. You can't speed up the process. It's going to be the same no matter what. And we live in this world where we expect a resolution. I'm hurting. I'm grieving. Get over it. No, you can't speed it up. In fact, my observation, just my personal observation that the more you the longer you go trying to stuff or stop grief the longer it's going to last you just have to deal with it grief is grief and it's not rational it's not a process that that you can you can control and you're going to be at times uh everything's going to be fine you're going to with, be, be with people and all of a sudden 
like a wave, it hits you, and you just are overwhelmed by the sorrow of a loss. That's the nature of grief. And, and then it will pass. And the further you get away from the loss, the less intense those times are. But you can't control it. You can only control how you respond and how you handle it, whether you turn inward or whether you turn to the Lord. So this is what we see when we go through times, times of grief. Too often also, we're very superficial in our theology. We think that when times are good, times are favorable, that God is blessing us. And we think that when circumstances are not so good, that God is angry with us. One woman complained that after years of struggling with something, she said, I just wish I'd never been made. And her spiritually mature friend said, God is still making you. Think about that. Others of us are going to have this kind of conversation with the Lord. See if I can pull pull this up. Ran across this little cartoon the other day. The first panel on the right, you have Jesus with his arm around somebody. You all know the poem, Footprints in the Sand, where... Jesus is saying that, uh, well, Lord, why are there only one set of footprints? I noticed that there's only one set of footprints when, when I went through hard times. Where were you? And the Lord says, well, that's when I was carrying you. That's, that's the poem. Here we have this cartoon, and the caption says, where you see one set of footprints is where I carried you. The other panel says, that long groove is where I dragged you kicking and screaming. Now, somebody took that way too seriously where, on some Facebook page where I saw this. God puts us through difficult times to teach us to trust in him. That's dragging us through kicking and screaming. It's not forcing us against our volition. That's not what it's saying. God puts us through difficult times so that we have to learn to trust him. He doesn't make us trust him, but he takes us through those difficult times hoping that eventually we will wake up and we will we will trust him. So here we have a situation where Hannah's got very difficult circumstances. It's daily, it's weekly, it's annually. And she has to learn to trust the Lord. Now, we live in this superficial world, as I was saying, where people think that if you're things are going good, God's blessing you. But you know, when things are not going good. And God's testing us. God's blessing us also. We have to understand that Hebrews chapter 12 doesn't say whom the Lord loves, he makes comfortable. It's whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He teaches discipline to, and that is the growth process. God's focused on the process, and most of us are focused on getting past the process. And we need to realize that the process is what matters, what brings it about. So before we wrap up, I want to get into this. This is going to take a little while, and I want to think through these issues. They're very important. Here we have a passage dealing with weeping, dealing with sorrow, de- dealing with grief. Is this legitimate or not? There is a proper role in place for this. So let's understand the role of weeping and the role of emotions in, the, in life. We've got to understand it in life before we understand it in the spiritual life. 
And we have to think about this biblically and not think about it in terms of what makes us comfortable or what makes us uncomfortable. First of all, we have to define emotion. Emotion is a responder within our makeup. I'm not saying where that is at this point. It's a responder that God has placed within our makeup, and it's something that responds to situations, circumstances, events, uh, people, even our own thoughts and emotions. We have certain thoughts, and we react emotionally. Anybody who's been married has said something to their spouse. I'm the only one who hasn't had this happen, but everybody else has had this happen, where you said something to your spouse, and all of a sudden they say something to you, that, that's a reaction. And you're going, now where in the world did that come from? I know my wife certainly experienced that a few times. Because you got something going on inside your head and somebody else interrupts that and you're, you're kind of upset inside your head and you're reacting emotionally to whatever it is you're thinking about and you spout off to somebody else. We react to our own emotions a lot have emotional reactions to our own emotions. So emotion is a responder to circumstances, situations, events, or even our own thoughts and emotions. When emotions are intense, we often express that through tears. Intense joy, we, we cry. And intense pain or sorrow or grief or loss, we cry. So weeping may be, it's not always, Weeping may be a spontaneous, automatic reflex to some intense emotion. It's not necessarily that way. Some people can turn on the tears, and they become manipulative. Okay, that's another category. We see that in the Scripture. Who manipulated with tears in the Bible? This is your Bible knowledge test for the day. Delilah. Right? Is that what you said, Tony? Yeah, nailed it. Delilah. She's manipulating Samson with her tears. So I just want to give you some random observations. I've thought about this a lot over the years. This is really important in in a particular topic of investigation. That is, what is the role and relationship of psychology or counseling or psychotherapy to Christian life? And we live in an era today that emphasizes relationship above almost everything else emphasizes relationship above everything else and so and we also live in an era that's been redefined by Sigmund Freud in the late 19th century to focus on psychology now if you look at books written before the late 19th century even during the late 19th century when psycho verbiage hadn't influenced society that much you'll read books great book by Franz Dalish the psychology of the bible You want to read that? You'll learn great personal insight. He spends the whole book talking about what does the word heart mean? What does the word soul mean? What does the word spirit mean? What what, what do all these different words use that refer to the immaterial makeup of man? That's what psychology meant before Freud came along. It had a, a lot of it had a biblical base. It's the study of the soul. Now, what book that we know of claims to be the sole and exclusive authority, no pun intended, on the soul. It's the Bible. The Bible tells us from the creator of the soul what the makeup of the soul is and what the issues in the soul are. 
Everything else that is done by Freud, Jung, Maslow, everybody else is all based on empiricism. And the problem with empiricism is the next fact you discover can upset the house of cards and tear down the house of cards you've built to that point. It's extremely fragile. And if they're ignoring certain data because it doesn't fit their worldview, then the house of cards that they built is completely unstable. So we get into these issues. So I've had to think about this since I was uh, in seminary. And along the way, there have been other issues that have come up and other questions in, in classrooms and theology as a pastor and as a professor and as a student to try to get to the heart of, uh, of a lot of these issues. So I'm just throwing out some of my random observations. First of all, the term emotion or emotion isn't a biblical term. That doesn't mean it's not a biblical concept, but it's not a biblical term. The term emotion as we use it is sort of a general catch-all term that describes a lot of individual responses that people have, everything from joy to hate to anger to jealousy. But the Bible doesn't use a one general term as a catch-all. It just deals with the specifics. It doesn't deal with. It doesn't have a universal category. Uh, emotion as a universal category comes later, and that's an extra biblical concept. That doesn't mean it's not usable as a term. Just ha we have to remember that you, you look emotion up in your concordance, you won't find anything because the word doesn't exist in the Bible. Second, uh, second thing that I've thought about is that emotions seem to be certain built-in responses, reactions that are frequently associated with either physical feelings or sinful responses. And that word feelings is really an interesting word. We talk about our feelings. Feelings are, are, are sense data. has to do with something tactile or physical. Jay Adams, significant guy in late 20th century evangelicalism, uh, was asked to be a professor of pastoral uh, ministry at Westminster Theological Seminary back in the 60s, and he kept having his students come and say, yeah, I have all these people coming to me as a pastor, and they want counseling. Just as a little Anna Caluthon, one time I was talking to uh, the uh, Lanier Burns, who was the, at the time the head of the theology department at Dallas back in the early 80s, and I'd been a pastor for about a year or two, and I would come to these alumni meetings and trainings, and everybody's talking about how many people they're counseling and this and that and the other thing. And I, I was, had, had lunch with Lanier, and, I, and we got off onto counseling, and he had about the same view that I do at the time. I think his view changed, but I'm not sure about that. But anyway, I said, you know, Lanier, I don't have anybody come to me for counseling. He looked at me and said, well, Robbie, that's because they know what you're going to tell them, and they don't want to hear it. I thought, okay, that's problem solved. <laughs> counseling, for the most part, by a pastor is done from the pulpit. He teaches how to solve the problems in your life from the Word of God. Now, there are times when people face specific circumstances and situations, and they need to sit down and have a little personal attention, and especially if they're babies because they haven't had time to get a lot of, a lot, a lot of doctrine into their soul yet, and so that's, that's uh, acceptable, and there's nothing wrong with that. But this is not something that should consume a pastor's time. So emotions are these feelings. And I was talking about Jay Adams, and Jay Adams came along, and he wrote a blockbuster book 
called Competent to Counsel that came out in the early 70s. And he said what had been true for pastors for for what not hundreds of years, for centuries. He said the role of the pastor is to teach the word and the role of the counselor is to challenge people in their life with what the word of God says they're doing wrong. They don't need to go to all these other schools and get degrees in counseling. That's what started happening in the late 60s and 70s is pastors would say, I got out here and people came to me with problems and I didn't know how to help them, so I got to go get a degree in psychotherapy. And I got to get a counseling degree and I got to have counseling classes in seminary because I don't know how to help people. You don't know how to help people because you don't know your Bible. And that's basically what Jay had, and he started this whole school of, of uh, sort of back to the Bible in terms of pastoral counseling that was very important. But Jay Adams is one of the few people, and I bring him up because this is important, who said emotions are not in the soul. Emotions are in the body. They're physical. How many times you have words related to emotion in the Bible that are that are body parts? When it says a person got angry. It says their nose burned. Doesn't they, they don't have an abstract concept. Somebody has compassion. It's splanchnoi. It has to do with their with their bowels are moving. Not like we use the term bowel movement. It's that it, something hits them in the gut. They have a gut reaction to something, and and they care about somebody. So uh, emotions. There's always a debate on this. Are emotions in the soul or emotions in the body? Another thought is that emotions, there's nothing inherently sinful in an emotion. It's what we do with them that involves sin. Therefore, we should think about emotions as a window to the soul. When we have certain emotions, we ought to say, hmm, what is that saying about what I'm thinking and what I believe at that particular time? It opens us up to thinking about what is going on in our thought world, what we're believing about circumstances and situations, and not it's not just this simple, simple reaction. So we need to think a little bit about emotions, and we'll come back and look at this uh, some more next time and try to understand what the Bible says pro and con in terms of our emotions. Father, thank you for this time that we have to think through your word and reflect upon uh, situations we're all familiar with in terms of grief and sorrow, uh, as well as being happy and joyous. And, uh, Father, we just pray that you'd help us to think through these things in our own lives in terms of what your word reveals to us. And, Father, above all, we're thankful for our salvation, thankful that God, God the Son has given to us his joy so that no matter what our circumstances may be or how difficult life may be or how down we may feel at times, that is still wrapped up in the joy that Jesus has given us. And help us to realize that on a day-to-day basis. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.